Is the Bible a book that is just so difficult to understand that only the most learned among men can ever understand it? Do we have to go through years of seminary training to have any concept of what the Bible means? And even then, we're all going to be all going to disagree. My answer to that is a resounding no. But if that's not the case, then why is it that so many different groups of people can turn to the same standard and come up with so many different opinions? Why is it that so many people today are certainly convinced that, well, the Bible is just so confusing, there's no way we're going to understand it. We can't be dogmatic about any of those things. Regrettably, those kinds of statements often say more about us who say them than they actually say about the Bible. I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11. Listen to this. The Hebrew writer talked about Melchizedek. He said, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain. But why is it hard to explain? Not just because it's hard to explain. He says, since you have become dull of hearing. It was hard to explain. It was confusing. Because people had become dull of hearing. I recognize that there are certainly parts of the Scripture that are difficult to understand. Peter told us that in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16, Peter said, As also in all his epistles, talking about Paul, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. Peter said there are some things that are hard to understand. But regrettably, most of the time when people today look at a passage and say it's confusing, they don't really mean it's hard to understand. What we more often mean is, that seems to contradict what I already believe is true. There are folks today who are absolutely convinced that God could never and would never require baptism for salvation. And so they look at passages such as Mark 16, 16 and John 3, verses 3 through 5, and Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, and understandably to them, these passages are confusing. We take a look at Mark chapter 16 and verse 16, and the Scripture clearly says, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who believes not shall be condemned. And yet folks today will say, well, you know, boy, we look at the end of Mark and we're just not really sure those verses are even supposed to be there. They look at John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, as Nicodemus had come to speak to Jesus. And in John 3, verses 3 through 5, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered in verse 5, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And yet some today would say, well, you know, the word water is used in the Scripture to mean all kinds of things. So we just can't be dogmatic and certain about that passage. They look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, and the Scripture there says, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they say, well, that word for... 
It could mean because of. It could mean in order to. We just can't be sure. We can't be certain. It's all rather confusing, so we ought not be dogmatic. To the unprejudiced hearer, those statements are obviously prejudiced confusion. But to the mind that is already predisposed and prejudiced against the thought that baptism is for salvation, those statements are the final defense. Now it would be very easy for us to spend our time within these walls to point our fingers at everyone else and all the times that they have prejudiced ideas about Scripture. But what we need to do is make sure that we're not making the same mistake. We have to make sure that we are using the standard properly. We have learned in the past already that God is our standard and He has revealed His mind to us in His Word. His Word is our standard and we must live by it. But it's not enough just to say His Word is our standard. Not only must we use the proper standard, we must use the proper standard properly. We've learned in the past already that we must make a distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've talked in the past already about the different styles of literature, the different genres of writing that are used in the New Testament. Today we want to take a step further and we want to notice some simple rules for honest Bible study. How can we overcome our preconceptions? What do we do when we go to the Bible and we begin to study it? We're going to look at five very simple rules. Rule number one. We've got to keep every scripture in context. Keeping something in context means that we take it with text. That means we don't just look at the particular words, the particular sentence, or the particular verse or passage. We look at what the Bible says around it, and we take that verse as it relates to everything that's said around it, with the text, in context. Why is this so important? I can tell you why. This is important because as some have said, and in part I believe them, we could teach anything we wanted to from the Bible if we'll take it out of context. For instance, are you aware that the Bible supports atheism? It certainly does. In fact, in Psalm 14 and verse 1 point blank, it says, There is no God. But you see, we need to take that in context, don't we? And as we take that line, that sentence in context, we're going to notice two things. First of all, we have to look at the immediate context. That means we're going to take a look at what is right around it in that very passage in Psalm 14. And secondly, we want to notice the remote context. That is, as we look at the Bible as a whole and all the passages around it, what does it say about that sentence? If we're looking at the remote context, it wouldn't take us long. We'd get to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, and we see that the very beginning of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we learn from the remote context that surely Psalm 14 and verse 1 is not teaching us that there is no God. We would look in the immediate context, then Psalm 14 and verse 1, and we'll notice that in fact this statement is not made in a vacuum. In Psalm 14 and verse 1 it says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. So that sounds a lot different than just saying there is no God, doesn't it? We have 
to take it in context. We can't take that sentence by itself. We recognize that in context, the Bible certainly supports the existence of God and describes everyone who declares he does not exist as fools and goes on to say they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Whenever we're studying anything, any word, any verse, any passage, any character, anything, we must make sure that we keep it in its context. Not what does it mean if I take that word or sentence all by itself, but what does it mean when I take it in relation to what the text says around it and to what the Bible says as a whole. In fact, looking at the remote context leads us to our second simple rule for honest Bible study. Not only do we take it in context, but we have to make sure that we use the sum of Scripture. Psalm 119 and verse 160. In the New King James it says, The entirety of your word is truth. The New American Standard says, The sum of your word is truth. Psalm 119, 160. That's what we need to understand. The sum of God's word is is truth. We are not allowed to grab one verse or one passage or even just a couple of passages and base our beliefs on those. We've got to take the entirety of what God says about a topic to come up with what we ought to believe about that topic. Let me give you an example. John 3.16. How many people know John 3.16? Everybody knows John 3.16. We see it at football games. We see it on bumpers. We see it everywhere. Everyone knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Everybody, if they know a verse, knows this verse. And far too many people base all of their understanding about the nature of God and the nature of salvation on this verse alone. But we cannot take this verse simply by itself. We need to recognize that we've got to look at what the Bible says elsewhere. When we're talking about love, we need to look at what the Bible says about love. What does that mean? We look at passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning at verse 4, where it tells us love is patient and love is kind, and it goes on and describes love. We look at passages like 1 John chapter 4, that talks about the love God had for us, and the love that we're supposed to have for God. We wouldn't just take John 3.16 by itself when it comes to belief. We need to look at other passages and what those passages say about faith. Hebrews chapter 11, for instance, what I like to call the hall of faith. As we look at all those who demonstrated faith and what did that mean in their lives. We might look at James chapter 2 as James describes the complete faith being completed by works. When we look at the nature of God, we can't just look at John 3.16. We have to look at other passages like Romans chapter 11 and verse 22 where it says, Consider the goodness and severity of God. When we consider the nature of salvation, we can't just look at John 3.16. We've got to look at other passages like Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 that says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. In Acts 2.38 where Peter said, Let every one of you... Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We've got to take all of these passages together. We can't just grab one passage or one verse and make that our headline passage and anchor everything around that. We just can't do it. If we're going to have honest Bible study, we've got to take the entirety of God's Word. Now, brethren, let me just tell you what that means. That means work, doesn't it? 
That means sitting down with the Word of God and reading it and studying it. There's certainly a time for us to look at our favorite passages and be comforted and reminded of what those say. But we've got to branch out and look at the whole thing. Because the sum of God's Word is truth. We've got to look at all the Scripture before we develop our thoughts and our opinions. Which leads us, of course, to rule number three as we consider the Scripture as we're looking at immediate context, remote context, and we're looking at the sum of Scripture. We've got to recognize a rule for how we use all that, and the rule is the rule of harmony. As we look at all these passages and what they say, we've got to keep them in harmony with one another. We notice what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 17, Paul said this, Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I planned, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, by me, Sylvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. What's he pointing out? He's saying, I'm not going to teach you yes and no at the same time. We're not going to be contradicting ourselves with the Word of God. We look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere, in every church. What do we learn from the Scripture? We learn that no matter who was speaking, nor to whom were they speaking, they were going to be teaching the same thing. The Scripture is not going to contradict itself. We're not supposed to believe yes and no at the same time. If I find one verse and my understanding says one thing, and another verse and my understanding of that verse contradicts that, the first verse, I've got a problem. We're not going to have contradictions. We're not going to have disunity. The Scripture harmonizes. And so as I am studying, I must make sure as I look at all the various passages in all their shades and in all their colors and all the different angles at which you might look at a topic, and I've got to work to harmonize it. Because the Scripture is unified and in harmony. And if there's something that disagrees, it's not the Bible. It's my understanding that needs to be fixed. For instance, we go back to John 3.16. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. And whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now we've got to harmonize that with the two passages we read just a moment ago. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, where it said that not just believe, but it said we've got to confess. For with the mouth we confess unto righteousness. And Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, it didn't even actually say the word believe. It said repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. How do we harmonize? those things. Those verses are not verses that different people with different opinions are allowed to latch hold of and lob them at each other like grenades. We've got to look at all those verses and figure out how they harmonize. Those verses are not divided up so that one of them is ours and one of them belongs to somebody else. They're all God's verses and they all go together and we've got to figure out how. We would come to James chapter 2, and we'd learn something there that would help us harmonize these verses. In James chapter 2, we'd read, beginning in verse 21, where James said, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by faith, by works, faith was made perfect? Another rule is always make sure you read the verse properly. By works, faith was made perfect. 
What do we learn here? In John 3.16, when Jesus said, whoever believes in Him, He wasn't just talking about mental assent. Oh, I agree that Jesus is out there. He was talking about a conviction and a surrender that begins with mental assent and is completed by obedience, such as repentance, confession, and baptism. Until I've done those things, I haven't obeyed John 3.16 and believed Jesus. Sure, I may have the mental assent. Oh, I believe Jesus is out there. But I haven't believed Him until I've been convicted to the point that I've obeyed Him and surrendered my life to Him. You see, it all harmonizes when we put it all together. When we step back and realize this one of these verses isn't mine and one of them is yours. They're all God's. And what did He mean when we put them all together? The verses have to harmonize. Rule number four. We need to keep in mind, as we're striving to harmonize the Scriptures... We need to let the simple define the complex, or the fundamental and the foundational to define the deeper things. We need to recognize that Bible study is a growth process. We look in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, the scripture there says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And we can flip back a few pages and we come to the book of Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. In the book of Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, the Hebrew writer said, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Don't stop there. Keep going into chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. What do we learn from these passages? Study is a growth process. We start with the milk of the Word and we grow to the meat of the Word. We have fundamentals. We have foundational concepts and principles. And then we move on to the more complex issues. But when we get to the complex issues, are they going to change the foundation at all? No. The simple things, those straightforward things, the fundamental things won't change. We need to allow those things to define the more complex not get to the more complex and come up with some far-out meaning and allow that to change the fundamental principles. Allow the simple to define the complex. Let me give you an example. There are passages that I am still certain I don't fully understand. There are several of them. I'm still studying them. And if you ask me what does that mean, I'd say, well, I really don't know. But here's what I think right now. One of those passages, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. I'm not sure I understand Revelation 20 fully. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now I have some opinions about it, and I, I think I'm right, but I'm not absolutely convinced of that. But I tell you, I am absolutely convinced of some things that this verse and this chapter absolutely cannot mean. Because there are 
other more fundamental foundational concepts and principles and passages that deny a whole lot of meaning that people ascribe to this verse. You see, a lot of people come to this verse and say, well, this means that one day down the road, Jesus is coming back to the earth and is establishing His kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. I may not be absolutely convinced I know what this passage means, but I know absolutely it cannot mean that. Because there are fundamental issues in the Scripture that demonstrate that it can't. For instance, John 18.36. In John chapter 18 and verse 36, the Scripture says, Jesus on trial, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Jesus' kingdom was never about this world and it's never going to be about this world or of this world. Look in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1. Mark chapter 9 and verse 1. There. On Mark 9, in Mark 9, 1, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death so they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, I'm amazed the folks will go to Revelation 20 and verse 4 and they'll come back and make a change the meaning of this verse. But this verse is pretty fundamental. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. Jesus said He was talking to people who would see the kingdom come. Where are all those people now? They're all dead. What's that mean? The kingdom must be here. Because He said it was coming before these folks would die. Can't be off down in the road, off down in our future, can it? Look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. As Paul talked about the church as it was in his day, 2,000 years before us, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul said that God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his dear Son. See that? Folks, back when Colossians were written, was written, they were already translated into the kingdom of God. Now here's one that I'm just amazed. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. As John began the book of Revelation in chapter 1 and verse 9, notice what he said. Very fundamental, very foundational, very simple, very straightforward. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, John said, I, John, both your brother and companion... What's companion mean? Fellow partaker, I'm doing this with you. We're working on this together. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. When John began the book of Revelation, he said he was already partaking in the kingdom. He's not going to get to the end of the book and say, well, the kingdom hasn't gotten here yet. I'm still studying Revelation chapter 20. I still have all kinds of questions about it. I've got some opinions about it, some strong ones. I'll probably share it with you someday. Because somebody's already asked that for one of our second Sunday night questions. I'll have to get that. get to that. But I know it can't mean some of the things that folks say today. Why? Because when I look at some of the fundamental principles, I learn it can't mean the kingdom is coming later because the Bible tells us clearly the kingdom is already here. And I need to figure out how to get in it. Allow the simple, the fundamental, the milk, to define the meat, the complex, the deeper. Now as we're going through this, rule number five, we need to recognize as we study, that we're all still growing. We need to recognize this, number one, when we come to a passage that we know we don't understand. We come to a passage that does confuse us, and we just don't understand what God means, and, and we don't understand how it fits with some of, our other, uh, some of the other passages that we've looked at. 
The reason why we need to remember that is because I have known people that they've come to questions that they don't know how to answer. They've come to passages they don't understand, and they decide, thinking way too much of themselves, that, well, if I don't understand it now, it must be understandable. God's Word doesn't make sense. And they leave the faith. I've seen lots of people do that. But, brethren, we need to keep in mind that we're growing. And if we're growing, that in and of itself means we're going to come to things that we don't know. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5-11 through 11, talks about our growth and how we're going to have to add knowledge to our faith. That means that right now there are things I don't know, and as I come to passages, I'm not going to understand them. But I don't throw up my hands and walk away from the faith. I just keep studying And as I build my foundation in the Word of God, learning more about what the Word of God says, I'll be amazed at the times I come back to questions that just seem unanswerable a year or two ago and find out that it just makes perfect sense now. Because I've grown. I am growing. The second area in which I need to remember this is those passages about which I'm absolutely sure I know exactly what they mean. I need to remember I'm growing, and I could be wrong. Brethren, I have some pretty strong opinions about issues like the book of Job, and what's, what is its point? About Matthew chapter 24, about anointing with oil in James chapter 5 and verse 14, about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 12, about baptism of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. And you know what? I am absolutely convinced that I am right, and if you disagree with me, you're wrong. I'm positive of that. But on each one of those issues, uh, before I studied this last time, I believed I was right on the last thing I believed on them, too. You see, I have to remember that I'm growing. And if I ever forget that, then I close off that door that will correct me when I'm wrong. And I have been wrong. And I imagine, though I can't imagine what issue it is right now, I imagine I'm probably wrong on something now. I have to remember that so I can grow. Now you may consider, well, yeah, but those issues you brought up a minute ago, I mean, those are interesting questions, but those, oh, that doesn't matter very much. Well, you know what? I am absolutely and utterly convinced that baptism is necessary for salvation. I'm sure I'm right on that. I've studied it over and over again, and I'm not sure of what argument could come up that would change my mind on that. But I was absolutely convinced that it wasn't necessary at one time. I had to grow. And what we recognize is that if I'm just going to go back to the Word of God, I have nothing to fear at looking at it afresh every time a disagreement comes up. Looking at it anew. Because if I'm right, then looking at it freshly is just going to prove it again. And if I'm wrong, looking at it freshly will allow me to grow, won't it? Brethren, I'm not saying that we don't take any stands on any issues. We have to take our stands based on what we believe the Word of God says right now. Not based on what others think it says. Not based on what we might think it says five years from now. I have to make my stands based on what it says right now. But when others disagree and they give different perspectives, I need to take a step back and look at it freshly. I might be wrong. And I can grow if I remember that. These are our rules. They're very simple rules. They're not that hard. We use them in everyday life. Take it in context. Look at what all of it says. Make sure it harmonizes. Allow the simple to define the complex. And remember that we're still growing. 
If we apply that to the Scriptures, we'll understand it. And we'll come to unity. We're using the proper standard. We need to remember what Paul said in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 32. Paul said, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It will build us up and give us that inheritance when we use it properly. Let's thank God for His word that He's given us. And let's use it the way He intended.